This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. In early March 2020, with the winter lifting and the bright spring sun shining down, Liverpool were on course to end their 30-year wait for an English league title. 25 points clear at the top of the Premier League, Jurgen Klopp's red machine had churned out an incredible 27 wins from 29 league outings, dropping just five points. These were unprecedented times. Yet following Liverpool's Champions League elimination to Atletico Madrid in the round of 16, on the 11th of March, Anfield so often the soundtrack that provided the beat to Liverpool's rock and roll football fell silent. I'm Guy Clark and here on the Blood Red channel we take a look back on the last 12 months as Anfield lay empty to explore the impact the coronavirus has had. The impact on the pitch? Of course we miss them so we miss them much and especially as Liverpool of course we miss them because we have um, the most special atmosphere probably in the world of football. On the fans? I felt my responsibility as someone who was a season ticket holder in the cop. I felt that I was playing my part. I felt that I'd been on this journey. I felt that it wasn't those 11 lads on the pitch. I felt like it was all of us together. Those covering games. It's very um, very streamlined, very kind of um, sterile almost. How football has shown itself to stand for more than just the 90 minutes. To not see your friends, uh, not see your mates, not go to pub, not do the normal things, match day routines um, has been incredibly hard. And the financial toll left behind. There were plenty saying that they shouldn't and null and void the season, but reality is that um, it would have been catastrophic. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. One year on from the last night, English football welcomed a capacity crowd to a football match. Something to many now inconceivable. But if we knew then what we know now, would the game have even taken place? Well, Paul Gorst was one of those in attendance as Liverpool took on Atletico Madrid. But with suspicions rising across the continent ahead of the game, recalls the atmosphere, even building up to the match, was different. I remember that night just for kind of... How busy it was. Um, I remember the press conference on the day before at Anfield and it was completely packed out as it normally would be a, a, um, a Champions League press conference. Um, we're all kind of sitting side by side, no two meter rules, you know, none of that. The world was very much just operating as normal. I remember Klopp getting asked a question by a, I think he was from Argentina, the journalist, but he, he lived in Madrid. Go back to the coronavirus. Unfortunately, it's something that we need to talk about. Uh, we come from Spain. There's a lot of concerns about they have closed schools for 15 days. They have uh, forbidden people to go to the stadiums, to, to attend to the stadiums while La Liga still go on. They have uh, said not to shake hands before the game, but football is a, a sport of contact, physical contact. Aren't you afraid that, that you, your players can, can get you know, exposed? Are you from Madrid? Are you from Madrid? I'm from Argentina. I live in Madrid. You live in Madrid? Okay. And you are you concerned? In your city they close they I'm close not playing football tomorrow. Oh, but that's not that not that special. So playing football is just a it's, it's just a game. We are we are not the society, we are part of the society and we should all be worried in the same time. And that's exactly the thing I don't like. That you sit here and ask me this question, but fly from Madrid to here. So Stay there. They close schools and universities, but why don't? And you are obviously concerned. That's that's the question. But you think now, football is worth it to travel or whatever. So that's the situation. That's our problem, our common problem. 
and we cannot sort it with football. We play football, it's our part, what we have to do. Your job is to transport information and I hope you do it better than you ask questions, to be honest. Because that's that's the moment where I, where I really get angry. When, when you give me the feeling, <laughs> I have a problem which you don't have. We have all the same problem. No, no, no I'm not saying that's that. That's exactly you said. But I don't play football. That's only no, one. That's no. only one part of the. I'm you talk that. every day to people from close range. What I don't do. Okay. So do you understand? Same. Are you worried? Let me explain myself. Ah. What, what I said is that there's physical contact in the sports. Yeah. Where, where I'm. I'm but they're, 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 but players in the moment they are all healthy. Why we should? Why we should worry? What we do with not shaking the hands is setting a sign. It's good for you. It's good for you. It's good for me not to shake hands. It's not important that. 22 completely healthy players not shaking hands. It's a, it's a sign for society, for everybody out there. In the moment you set signs as well, then we are in the same boat. So that's why we do it. We are in the same boat. I am not sure, but it's not so important. <laughs> the day after the game, you're obviously aware of it because I think Cheltenham Festival was, was that week, maybe. Was it the day after? Or um, a few days before, but um, it was around that time anyway, and that was obviously allowed to go ahead so you're aware you're aware of it, but you're just thinking if the powers that be are saying it's all fine, then you know who are you to question it? You're just cracking on with what you've got to do, and you're thinking of you're covering the game, little angles and, and bits that you might kind of find a way into your piece. It's just just all normal, normal standard fare. Um, and I think what made it even more crazy when you're thinking maybe six six weeks on was the fact that. Madrid was the, the epicentre of the virus at the time, wasn't it, in Europe? Joe Blot, chair of the Spirit of Shankly Supporters Group 2, had his concerns and remembers events building up to the game with 3,000 supporters from Madrid set to descend on Liverpool. We played Bournemouth before the Madrid game and we spoke to the club on the Friday before the game and you know they were following government guidelines about whether the match would go ahead or not. And it, then it was just like simply wash your hands and use some hand sanitizer and then You know, come the, come the Tuesday before the game, uh, Madrid had become the epicenter of the pandemic in, in Europe. And again, we contacted the club and asked what it was going ahead. They said they were following government guidance. The uh, UEFA were, were insistent on it going ahead. Um, so you kind of go to the game with, with this. It should be okay because everyone's telling me it's okay, but actually it didn't feel okay. Um, and, you know, the topic before the game was, was what does this all mean? Um And then, of course, you know, we, we, we later find out that, as you say, um, Liverpool, the city, did become, um, you know, a, a real kind of victim of that. Dan Morgan, content editor of Liverpool.com and cop season ticket holder, was one of those at the game that night and recalls the atmosphere inside Anfield. When we allowed, as a country, we allowed, you know, 3,000 Spanish fans to come to Liverpool Um, knowing what was going on in Spain in terms of the pandemic fully hitting over there and and how contagious it seemed to be, it, it did give you that feeling that you were you were almost doing something wrong by being in attendance, and it it was the start of that feeling that's probably been in everyone for the last 12 months in certain situations, but also it was that feeling that what was actually for the first time what was actually going on on the pitch wasn't the primary concern. Of, of Liverpool supporters that night and you know for for a, a mass of people who've been so invested in the team doing what they were doing and getting to the point in which they were getting to which all of us were so desperate for that that particularly was hard to take 
The day after Liverpool's elimination from the Champions League, with the Reds' title rivals Manchester City set to play Arsenal that night and attempting to claw back their 25-point deficit, Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta tested positive for COVID-19, which saw the game postponed. The following morning, the Premier League and EFL confirmed English football was heading for lockdown and into the great unknown. The Echo's business of football writer Dave Powell explains financially the impact the delay caused within Premier League football, specifically, of course, the champions-elect. Football finance, in the main, uh, most of the things are, are fairly predictable. Um, certainly the Premier League, I mean, um, stadiums sell out, um, they know the wage structure for the year, um, and, and aside from kind of a big splash in the transfer market, everything else is throughout the year is fairly predictable. The only kind of unknown is is when European football comes into play and missing out on, on European football. But in, in the main, they can clubs can can kind of take the strain of that almost once or twice. But I think when you're throwing that into the pot with a, a pandemic, no one could have seen, kind of foreseen the fact that it's not just gate receipts, it's um, it's it's obviously broadcast rights, the, the hospitality that comes with, with Anfield. I mean, FSG uh, heavily invested in terms of the main stand there to try and accelerate their commercial revenues and their hospitality and hostelry and, and things like that. After the suspension of football came the rumour mill, the scaremongering. Could Liverpool really be denied the title? Karen Brady amongst those leading the null and void brigade. Whilst Holland and France both headed down that route for the wealth invested into the Premier League, it was never a viable option. The, the product is is so massive globally um, to to stick a pin in it. I mean, it, the French football is, is, is kind of a, uh, I mean, you can see the, the financial crisis they've had with the TV deal. I mean, they took that large TV deal initially because it provided the best chance of them um, bridging that gap between themselves. I mean, because French football is considerably behind, I mean, PSG aside, um, it, the rest of the league is considerably behind and uh, the Premier League, Bundesliga, La Liga, um, and, not so much Serie A, Serie A kind of fall between those three now. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the, the kind of machinations of everything in terms of the Premier League, it's it, to, to pull the plug on it would have been um, catastrophic for clubs and commercial partnerships and also broadcast rights. So they, they simply had to to find a way to to progress. Um, I mean, there were plenty saying that they shouldn't and null and void the season, but reality is that um, it would have been catastrophic and um, to, to football clubs, even the biggest, I mean, because you, you, you whip away the revenue streams of, of, of even, you know, kind of the wealthiest clubs, and, and unless they're kind of backed by bottomless pits of, um, of kind of oil and petrol wealth, it's, um, they're, they're laid bare, you know, and, and clubs still need to function as businesses uh, in the main. So it would have been, I mean, that's the reason behind it. I mean, the, the, the TV rebates, the whole, the, the success of the Premier League has always been predicated on um, TV money. Uh, increasing year on year. That's why it's so attractive to uh, investors, particularly US investors, because they kind of just ride the growth of the sport. Um, and the, the returns have been fantastic in terms of the interest level grows, marketability grows, and um, TV revenues have steadily grown. I mean, it's kind of plateaued um, past couple of years, but people have been held in the, the end of the, the bubble being burst for as long as I can, I can remember now. And, and, and while this... It's probably the closest it's going to come to, to being burst. I don't think it will. I think it will steady itself eventually and, and kind of move forward because people just, you know, they, they, 
they want the content and they 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 crave it and, and the premier league knows that and, and that's why they have to keep the product going it's like netflix kind of canceling uh, all all their shows and everything um and and just being left with kind of a void you know that's effectively what what would have happened to the premier league Whilst football was on hold, though, the pandemic took grip, especially on Merseyside. And as the government introduced their job retention scheme for employers to furlough employees, FSG sought to take advantage of the system prior to a backlash, which, of course, involved the spirit of Shankly and chair Joe Blott. I think it was interesting on many facets, really. I think the groundswell of, of support or anger about it um, in some ways made, made the union's job a bit easier because we certainly had certainly had quite a lot of support around that uh, and quite vociferous as well, um, if, it, if it may say. Um, I think our view was, was that we, we always felt it was important for the club to to tell us why they wanted to do it um, as opposed to just doing this. And I think that's where over that weekend, I think, when when they made the, made the U-turn on, on the Monday after at the announcement on the Friday, um, I think they questioned themselves because the questions we posed to them were just simple questions about the veracity of why they should be doing a furlough, you know, as a, as a multi-billion pound business. Uh, yes, they could take um, opportunity to, to use the, the, the government's furlough scheme. Was it morally correct? And I think I think that the final point that we made at the time was, was that you say that, you know, this means more um, as a slogan. Uh, you talk about the, the fans being part of the, the family, etc. But you can't just turn those values on and off. Um, and your values have to be there permanently. And that was the conversation that we had on on the Monday with them. And, and to be fair, they were in very much listening mode. And I think they were in listening mode you know, right across to, to America as well. Um, and I think they understood um, just the difference because they use furlough schemes quite normally in America, um, quite unique over here. Uh, so for them, I think they'd seen a, this is just what happens. Whereas uh, we saw it very differently that you, know, you can't just take advantage of a government scheme when, you, when you're in a, in a, a position of, of strength, uh, particularly financial strength. And I think, I think they made the right decision. Uh, and I think, I think they made the right decision through conversation. And I think that was the main thing was that if they'd have spoken to us before they made the decision, um, they may have made the same decision, but they would have had context. Uh, but of course, by by doing it the way they did, the context came out later, and the context was more powerful than that than, than what their decision had been. It's at those moments that it, a big organisation like that needs to read the signs, doesn't it? And it, it misread it, um, and it's done a heck of a lot as a club um, during the past two years, in particular, and during the last year, more so in terms of community support. And so I think it I think it understands its role um, as a presence in Anfield. Um, you know, which clearly it hadn't had before. Um, it just kind of existed there. Um, but now it sees itself as having a, a fundamental um, cornerstone to, to the L4 area. And that's what's, that's what's really important, but they recognise that. And I think they're starting to do that in good ways. But I think always they, they've got to think themselves outside of the, the, the business box. They've got to see themselves. It's a football business. Um, football business actually means something to the local community. They've got a responsibility to the residents of L4. Um, and the more that we can help them with that, you know, the more that, that that's okay. And I think that's why why we see that ourselves. You know, we, we know we turn up on a, a Saturday or when it is match day, you know, um, I bought a two or three hours of, of, of L4's fabric. And I need to respect that. And the football club needs to do the same.
The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. After more than three months away on the 17th of June, football thankfully did return with the Premier League launching Project Restart as clubs played out the remainder of the season behind closed doors. Since then, the Echo's Liverpool correspondent Paul Gorst has been one of the few afforded the opportunity of taking in live football inside Stadia. But what's the experience been like? No no pre-match teas and coffees, which is a shame, but it's it's... Yeah, it's very um, very streamlined, very kind of um, sterile almost. You, you you cut through Stanley Park now to get into the ground. You you sign your, your pre-match waiver almost that you, you haven't uh, tested positive for coronavirus in the last week. You, you haven't had a test. You have had a test, you know. You track and trace and all that kind of stuff. You get shown to your seat. It's all very socially distanced. I sit next to Ian Doyle, who's about five or six seats away from me. We're all kind of cordoned off. You've got your own space. Uh, we're sitting in a, in a new place. We're, we're a little bit higher up in the main stand, which um, from a from a vantage point, I prefer. But um, it, it's it's all very sterile and, and um, cold. If you like, you don't get any mix zones anymore, so you're not sitting or standing waiting for the players to come through anymore and trying to grab two minutes with Virgil van Dijk or few minutes with Andy Robertson or whoever else is, is kind enough to stop for you so it's very much just get in and out and the press conferences are over Zoom and I don't like them at all to be honest I mean I uh, don't know if I'm breaking the fourth wall or whatever but when we have the the Friday press conferences myself and the the journalists who are on the Nationals get our own kind of five or ten minutes with, with Klopp so there's maybe half a dozen of us each, each Friday in a little room kind of quizzing them over one or two things and you normally get get your chance to get your question in, get your follow up in, but now with with the press conference, you're doing that with with everyone else, with with the broadcast, with the the websites, with the you know whoever it is, and they're all kind of on the same Zoom chat, and and I very much prefer the kind of intimate setting where you you gathered around and you can you can kind of react to to an answer with a question rather than than raising your hand and having kind of a pre-made question in in hand. But uh, it's it's the way of the world, and also kind of working from home, you know, just the practicalities of, you know, you got your dog barking in the background, so, something that seems to happen to me every Friday, you know, as, as Jürgen's answering the questions, and then you're a bit reluctant to go on Zoom in case you can hear next door are doing work on their house, and, and you can hear drilling or you know whatever. It's just just minor things which don't sound too big in the grand scheme of things, but they kind of do they, they put me off raising my hand and getting a question in in case you know you have a an embarrassing moment on Zoom and, and your subject of a, of a viral video. It really is kind of a strange way of working. And, and I must be honest, if the world does go back to normal at the end of June and, and we are allowed to go into the access training centre, I'm looking forward to, to getting back to, to that way of working. Paul Gorst on the reporting of games, but what was left for supporters? Well, so much of football fandom is about those experiences of going to the game and everything attached to it each having their own rituals. Joe Blot of the Spirit of Shankly tells us it's been a tough time for many match-going fans. Probably more than, than, than you might anticipate that, that people are being contacting us. And, you know, yeah, I, th- I think even more so in recent weeks, I, I, I think given the way that the team have been playing, uh, particularly at home and, and not getting the fans behind them, I think, I think people have really felt that um, wanting to be there for the, for, the, for the team, but also wanting to be there to, to be with their friends and, and, and colleagues. And we, we, we've worked with the LSE Foundation just before Christmas. Um, 
about setting up a, something called the Big Red Talk, uh, which was really to highlight uh, what is, mental health issues around and suicide issues around for, for football fans at, at this moment in time. Um, we had uh, over 250 people signed up to that. Uh, and actually 100 people came and joined the event on, on the evening. Um, and that was about hearing about you know, what mental health services are available in the city, um, what coping strategies that, that, that are there, but also to have a bit of fun and a, and a bit of music as well. And um, it, It's been really hard, I think. I think, I think football fans are expected to be resilient, aren't they? They're meant to be the, the, the tough guys and all this, and it's not. It's hard um, because even if you can't go to the game, you, you, you're not working or you, your family's affected by COVID and um, it's, hitting, it's hitting people in, in a new you know, number of ways. And one thing we did the other week was we had a virtual coach trip um, before one of the games. And, you know, 40, again, 45 people joined us on that. Um, just really to, again, make contact with their mates uh, that they hadn't seen for, you know, the best part of the year. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, you know, I think anything that we can do to try and try and lift the spirits around that, you know, we, we'll try and do, but, but, but it's affected people badly. And I think, I think that that's the worst thing for me is I think, you know, coming out of this hopefully soon and in a not too distant future would be um, doing things like going to the game again. Um, but I think the mental strain that's put on people will, will be long lasting. I, I think football is great. And I think, you know, I, I think, you know, a year ago, somebody said to you, you're going to watch wall to wall football uh, on TV. Um, you just said, fantastic, this, this is the way it should be. But people are just missing the, 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 the camaraderie, you know, going to the pub before the game. As I said before, the, you know, the match day routine. Match day routine is like, you know, getting up, uh, thinking about, about who's going to be playing, then having a chat with your mates about who's going to be playing, who shouldn't be playing, uh, then getting the, the team news an hour before, moaning about the team news or celebrating the team news an hour before. If that's all gone, and you're kind of switching the telly on it five minutes before the before the game now, um, just to watch the game, and as soon as the game's over, sort of leaving it, it, it. I think for you know for anyone who watches TV because that's the only way they can watch football, then it, it's probably great to follow your team that way because you'll be used to that. But I think for a match-going fan, that that lack of contact, that lack of social contact, that lack of just banter and you know say friendly banter even with with the opposition fans. Um, just makes your day. It's an event, and, and and that's gone. And I think you know that's we desperately need that back, really, to give people a lift around around football being a being what it what it should be, which is actually bringing bringing people together. But deeper than that, what about when you've waited thirty years to see your side lift the league title? Been the butt of jokes, seen hopes dashed before the building of a team of a generation. Where it was really hard to take for me was that if if. I think if Jurgen Klopp wasn't in charge of Liverpool, then I could have taken it a lot, e- a lot easier. I think for what this manager's done and, and the way in which he has, has told every one of us, especially us lucky enough to go to the game, that we have a huge responsibility here to play a part in this being the success that it has been. We have to play our best game. Everybody in the stadium has to be in an absolutely top shape. Um, the guys who sell the hot dogs has to be in a top shape. Uh, so everybody has to be from the first second when come early in the stadium, go inside, nothing to do outside, um, wait for the team, for the warming up, be there, all that stuff. That's what I wish for. You know, at that point, to say we bought into it was an understatement. And I felt my responsibility 
as someone who was a season ticket holder in the cop, I felt that I was playing my part. I felt that I'd been on this journey. I felt that it wasn't those 11 lads on the pitch. I felt like it was all of us together and we were all doing it. And to to have that taken away from us, you now I always think at the end of the season, the players got a medal, but we didn't get our medal. And our medal was seeing them lifted in person. And our medal was being at Anfield that night and inside that stadium. You know, we didn't get our medal for the part we played and we played as a collective an incredible part. And I think it coincides with what's happened to the team's form. I think, you know, people are easy to brush that off and say it's just a generic thing. But what this manager did was something that I've never felt or seen before. And I, you know, it became one of my favourite places on earth because I was learning things every week or every other week. I was learning about what can be achieved by sheer will and belief. And I was I was learning about desire and I was learning about togetherness. And to have that taken away from yeah, it's been yeah, it's been awful. It's been the worst possible, cruelest um scenario from last from this time last year that, that you could imagine. And that message is one Jurgen Klopp reiterated ahead of the Reds Champions League round of sixteen tight with RB Leipzig. Football would not be the game we love when nobody would be interested in like nobody would want to would want to watch it in a, in a stadium so yes of course we miss them so we miss them much and especially as liverpool of course we miss them because we have um, the most special atmosphere probably in the world of football so that's clear that it makes a massive difference we don't it's no excuse for anything so we deal really long really well with it when they're playing without supporters but in difficult times obviously then that can be really helpful especially and um, so yes i can't wait for the day when people are allowed again to go to the stadium. As Project Restart played out, it seemed a case of all parties making best of a dire situation, including how to celebrate the end of an eternal wait for domestic glory. From my perspective, it was it was a career highlight, uh, being inside Anfield that night on July the 22nd, I think. There was one of only, I was one of only 500 people allowed in, and, and even some of the players' families and and friends went allowed in. If you remember, they had to get special dispensation from the grounds safety advisory group and, and Liverpool City Council just to just to allow an extra few in because it was all kind of closed off and cordoned off, wasn't it, at the time? So even people who work for the club weren't allowed in. So for me to kind of be one of the, the lucky few to be in there on that night, I, I'll never take it for granted. And, and I know I was there to do a job, but. It was a it was a fantastic experience. It wasn't wasn't as good as it, as it could have been if fifty four thousand would have been in the ground and and you know hundreds more stationed outside of it celebrating and setting the fireworks off and whatever else. But that was understandable. Um, that was just a, a, a fact of life. But um, I thought Liverpool kind of executed it as perfectly as they could with the the uh, the Champions playlist from George Sefton um, that has played pretty much every game now and every time I hear the, the songs from that night I always think back to, to that night and, and kind of just remember how good it was and it was done as well as could be with the um, the kind of special podium on, on the cop but I think the feeling was at the time that Liverpool are going to go again and, and the, the kind of determining factor for this season was to be having that celebration again with the supporters and okay hasn't turned out anywhere near like that has it but Hopefully next season that that will still kind of um, be the the overriding emotion for Liverpool fans to make sure that they can celebrate a 
plenty of league title with the supporters inside Anfield because uh, there's no doubt that while the real world got in the way and it was uh, much more serious things to be contemplating at that time, it was quite sad that that wasn't able to happen. A title won and hoisted into Liverpool's night sky. But what was the psychological impact? There's been no coronation, no bus parade, no adulation on the streets of the city. I think something flips in this team when they turn on that bus with the Champions League trophy onto the strand, onto the pier head that day. I think the minute they get onto that stretch of road, the realisation of Liverpool hits them like a ton of bricks. Every one of them. Even James Milner who's been around and won everything with Man City apart from that cup. It hits every single one of them in the face of what this club is and what it it means and what what it's like to win for this club. What you what your name means to people when you give them that joy and that success. And I think that I think that bus ride along Liverpool's pier head made every one of them say to themselves, we'll have a bit more of this please. We'll have some more of this, and there's, there's only to do that. You have to have, you have to have everything right. You know, you have to have the supporters there, and you have to feel that you've done it for them. You have to feel their their joy. You have to feel their overriding emotion because this is an emotional club. It's an emotional concept. It's why people from all over the world buy into it. It's why players buy into it. It's why managers buy into it, and and to. I think to, to ask the players to do that without that presence, it take, in many senses, it takes away the whole object. It takes away the, the purpose of what they're doing it for. They're doing it so they can feel that feeling that they've made the people happy. It's an old Shankleyism. But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a jolly old parade down, you know, down the street in, in whatever country, whatever city in the country, and, and, and you know, Parading a cup around and stuff like that, and then they're seeing, they're seeing hundreds of thousands of people. There's, you know, there's the red smoke. There's people hanging off lampposts. There's people overjoyed, overjoyed, you know, and overcome with emotion because you've done this thing for them. And and I think now, I think it's difficult for Liverpool to do that with with what they done last year. I think it has to be parked, and I think that the only hope is that we get fans back and we and we are able to to maybe live that moment again fully and properly. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. As summer fell into autumn prior to the winter taking grip, all of a sudden the sterile echoes of Anfield had become all too familiar. Before the year was out, Anfield would get a chance to serenade their champions. 2,000 fans at the games with Tottenham Wolves and West Bromwich Albion. The Echo's own Sean Bradbury, one of those there on the night fans returned to Anfield. So here we are then, been a long time coming, 270 days to be exact, pretty much nine months or best part of a football season since fans set foot inside Anfield. The back again tonight, albeit in small numbers, about 1,500 to 2,000 of them, uh, mostly on the cop with a few on the main stand. But yeah, bit a momentous day really for, for football and as we've seen across this weekend so far, fans returning around the country, which is a welcome boost really for the game and for everyone after uh, what's been a very, very difficult and painful year for many. So yeah, it's just great to see Reds back in there. Um, I think you know, for, for Liverpool fans especially, this is this is a particularly welcome thing because they get to greet the champions and give them their due at Anfield for the first time since they won the league. But I, I think it goes beyond that really. 
from what we've heard from Klopp and the players, you know, it's 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 a very significant thing for them as well. It, football's almost felt like a different sport at times. I think since Project Restart and this season as well, when it's all been behind closed doors, you know, I think players have, for various reasons, VAR and the lack of fans and the lack of emotion in the game, the lack of that connection with supporters, it's all it's all felt very different for them. Um, and and I think Klopp as well. He, he said last week in in one of his press conferences that. Everything's felt difficult without the fans. So even though there's only a couple of thousand here tonight, I think it's only about four percent of the capacity of the ground. It's a very significant first step, I'd say, to, towards getting more and more back in the stadiums, which hopefully we'll see as the season goes on. Dan Morgan, too, after a long seven months away, was back on the cop. It was more strange being outside Anfield than actually in, if that makes sense, because it's it was still very very deserted outside, and it was literally the the. The, the process consisted of two queues that I could see outside the cop. And usually that road outside the cop end is just thriving and buzzing. And, you know, everything you associate with match days, you know, the smell of the burger vans and people, um, you know, people just everywhere and, and excited. And you, know, you can you can get a, you can get a sense where, you, you know, you walk down a road and you run into four or five people you know and, and everybody's talking about the game that day. Maybe there's been a game before and, there's some narrative around it and just the whole sense of the match day element was missing. But to be inside the ground was, it was really nice because I remember just feeling like I got to be part of it again and I got to play my part. And I remember being surprised by how how visceral it was. You know, it, it was 2,000 people, but they made up for the 52,000 that couldn't be there. And they were, you know, they, they were overjoyed to to, to see to see their their guys again, their team, and and this is the thing, you know, these these set of players are ours, and and you know, I think I think if there was a way in which we could send that message to them now, I know someone tried on on Sunday against Fulham with the plane, but if we could be in Anfield now, just to just to let them know that you know we are with them, and and you know that they are, they will do for us because of what they've done, and we and we believe that they can do it again. Because they can, you know, and and you don't you don't win a European Cup and a Premier League and amass 196 points in two seasons to to suddenly have people who who I would I would call you know a, a rational supporter base on the whole lose its lose its faith in you. So you know I I just wish there was a way in which we could have that. But to be back there in December was it was it was nice, but it was also cruel because you, you got the feeling that. Again, this wouldn't last, and again, it wasn't part of something that was going to build to to the whole thing coming back, which we all want. And you can only pray now that that is the case. For Paul Gorst, who'd witnessed a solar seven months, the return of fans was more than welcomed. It sounded a lot more than it was. It was a two thousand, um, and there's no coincidence that Liverpool's best performances of the season came when they had the fans in there. It was at Wolves, and then uh, and then Tottenham. Um, I think Leicester. Um, I don't think Leicester had fans in, from what I can remember, but I think Leicester Wolves and the, and the Tottenham game were probably Liverpool's best performances of the season, certainly best results in terms of that Tottenham game with, with Firmino's last-minute header. Um, but some of them some of them have been desperate, dire. You know, some, you've questioned... I think I've spoken to you a few times now, that Michelin game in, in the Champions League, where the first Liverpool's first Champions League game since getting knocked out by Atletico Madrid, and, and you think of how big... Those nights normally are, and, and they're playing the team from Denmark, who 
with respect to them, uh, you know, one of the lesser heralded teams in the competition. Few players that, that you've ever really heard of, and it was all a bit quiet and cold. Liverpool got themselves a win, um, and it was all just a bit so what. Um, and the Arsenal game in the League Cup was was a real low point. You know, extra time penalties, one of the worst games of the season. Played in front of no fans, reserve teams in a competition that neither club are really interested in, and then Liverpool go and lose on penalties and then out the cup. Um, at times, it's been a really um, desperate watch in, in front of no fans, and, and I just can't wait for next season when, when hopefully, fingers crossed, cases stay low and, and they are allowed back in and we can get back to some sort of football and normality. Liverpool 60 points from 37 league games since football suspension perhaps gives more foundation to the claims made by Jeannie Van Aldem ahead of Liverpool's round of 16 tie with RB Leipzig. Liverpool's new club record of six home defeats in a row could have been avoided, if only for fans. Well, let me say it first. Like, I, 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 will, I believe that the things that are happening to us right now will not happen if, we, if there were fans in the stadium because the fans... As you know, help us a lot through through difficult times. When you have difficult times during the game, there the fans are there to help you to get over it, um, to give you even more energy than you than you have right now, of that you have in that moment. Of course, they make us stronger than than we are at the moment. I think everyone can saw it. No one can deny it either. But um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know if uh, well. I think I think we can do better. Uh, even without fans in the stadium, but I'm I'm sure, and I think everyone with me that the situation we are in right now will not happen if fans were in the stadium. With hope maybe on the horizon now, though, what does the future hold? Returning to 54,000 fans may seem a daunting prospect. One Joe Blot says the spirit of Shankly are ready to deal with. I think people will be fearful about just going to the game per se, whether it's a crowd issue or whether it's just a safety issue from their own their own well-being. Um, in terms of the work we're doing, I mean, whilst they've kind of been one-off events, what we're trying to do is trying to build a legacy here. Um, so we've, we've put a program aside, really, to begin a challenge, again, with the foundation um, to build up a network now of, of, of support mechanisms. Um, we want to set up coffee mornings. We're talking about having uh, match day chats. We're talking about raising profile at, at forthcoming games when we can get back in the ground. Um, We've, we've actually partnered up with um, uh, the Notre Dame Everton Valley School um, and, and set up a sensory room with them, which is ostensibly for, for the young people who go to the school. Uh, but it's also going to be available for community use as well. So we're hoping sort of that on, you know, if there was it, someone just needed some time out on a match day, for example, um, there's, there's an area they could go to not too far from the ground um, that they could use uh, just, to, just to chill, just to to take that moment really to to relax and and feel back back feel themselves feel their way back into you know going to the match again so so yeah so so we're not we're not viewing this as, as kind of single one-off events it's about trying to develop a program over the next one two or three years because we think this will have a tremendous impact on football fans uh, going forward and what about the financial cost what will happen in the transfer market with the results having slipped will fsg be in a place to undertake a transfer rebuild Dave Powell tells us there'll be a conflict of thoughts at clubs across the Premier League. I don't see Liverpool's approach to the transfer market changing. Um, that it has not only served them well for long enough, um, 
it, it, it's probably a, a necessity now. Um, my own personal viewpoint is that, that they that there comes a point in every cycle of a football club where investment's needed. I mean, they did it. The investment that they had, they they did to buy Van Dijk and Allison, um, was needed. Although the flip side of that is that the Coutinho deal allowed for that to happen. Um, but whether Coutinho was sold or not, they, that investment was needed at that time to make Liverpool um, to push them onto the next level. Um, the, the money they got for Coutinho, I mean, if you you can't expect to flip a £140 million player from an £8 million signing all the time. It's just not feasible. So that was kind of a, almost a, a manner from heaven, I suppose. But for Liverpool, I mean, they, they sold Rian Brewster, didn't they, for a... Um, a good chunk to, to Sheffield United, so that was a good bit of business. The market's going to be soft, so so shifting on big players that, that maybe don't feature, the, the market isn't going to be as bullish as it was last time. Around. Certainly for the fringe players. So if you look at the the kind of the, the money they got for the likes of Solanke and, and people like that in the past, I mean, I, I just don't see the market being that strong at the moment. Um, and also when it, that's on the flip side of that, because Liverpool's transfer policy is so closely entwined with. Their, their ability to move players on at a considerable profit. You kind of wonder how that's going to affect transfer spend. I mean, I know I've seen some suggestions that Liverpool will spend big in the summer, some suggestions that they will be very cautious, and I, I'm probably inclined to lean to the fact that they'll be cautious um, in the transfer market, which much to the to chagrin of, of Liverpool fans, I imagine, because it's this is a summer when they need to invest. And I think given... The pandemic, you can, you know, from a business point of view, you understand why you wouldn't spend that much money. But I mean, the reality is, there's a good chance now that they're not going to make Champions League, and that's a, a huge, that'll be a huge hit in the pocket for them. And they can't allow that to roll on to another year um, of kind of uh, missing out on, on the great prize because everyone else is strengthening him around them. You look at Chelsea, I mean, that side, I mean, starting to come to fruition now under Thomas Tuchel, and, and you imagine next season they'll be title challenges um, along with City. I mean, City have moved on to another level this season. Man United are getting their house in order under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and they'll probably have a... Uh, I don't think they'll spend an enormous amount this summer, but I'll, I think they'll strengthen on a, a squad which, to his credit, he's managed to settle and looks like it has a structure now. And Leicester now, I mean, no one expected Leicester to come in and, and, and break up the the top six. Everton are on the fringes of it and, and, and they're getting stronger and they're going to invest. So, this is a somewhere, you know, while from a business point of view, in terms of watching what you spend and watching the pennies, it makes sense. From a footballing perspective and what it looks like moving forward, it, there's a worry that Liverpool could find themselves kind of getting left behind. And they've, they've been excellent leveraging that success commercially um, that they had in the Champions League and uh, in the Premier League. I mean, that's been fantastic for them. They've been able to kind of, you know, attach a huge number of commercial deals to that. But they will also have to invest into the pitch the product on the pitch because i just don't think um they'll be able to i mean you can't just go to the, the mine michael edwards's knowledge every single summer and expect him just to work miracles again i mean the wijnaldum shakiri and uh, uh andrew robertson deals i mean all players signed from relegated clubs um the stats weren't great when they got relegated for those individuals but when you look deeper into it uh, the stats and, and their contribution that's why liverpool signed them um that you can't rinse and repeat the same trick all the time. And I think there's going to come a time when Liverpool are going to have to, in FSG, are going to have to dip their hand in the pocket. But I, I just don't know whether they'll be inclined to do so. Football, of course, has felt the impact of the pandemic, but we will be back. But as Joe Block details, things may not be quite as they were. When we go back into the ground properly, uh, you know, hopefully next season, 
you know, do we actually know that the person who we normally sit, in, sit next to, sit in front of, sit behind, are they actually going to be there? You know, and a, a, that, that's a really hard thing to find out uh, at the first game next season. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a number of multi-layers about how, how a football fan has been affected by, obviously it's affected everybody in many different ways, but just as a football fan, to not go to the game, to not celebrate your team in the Premier League, and then also, you know, to not see your friends, uh, not see your mates, not go to pub, not do the normal things, match day routines, um, has been incredibly hard. You know, two pieces of work that stand out for me that, that were outstanding pieces of work that actually, you know, went, went across um, the spectrum of, of clubs. Um, thinking about the um, the pay-per-view campaign, for example, um, you know, we were appalled that the, 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 they wanted to introduce uh, pay-per-view um, for, for, for fans coming back to watch the game. Um, we stood shoulder to shoulder with the Blue Union um, and they, through the, the net, through Fan Support and Food Bank Network, got involved with Newcastle, got involved with Leeds. And, you know, we, we wanted to have a protest, but a protest with a heart. Um, and that's what we did. We raised £150,000 locally uh, alongside um, our, our Everton uh, colleagues um, and nationally raised over half a million pounds for, for local communities everywhere. So I think that's that mobilisation. You have to do it differently. But, but actually, football fans have always been a force for good. Um, but we, sometimes when people don't see that as a collective spirit, but actually unified behind the football fan is, is, is a huge network, like you said, around that. And the, the second one for me that stood out was uh, I, just th- I, I just think football fans seeing that they have a role in, in in community life per se. And you think about the scandal of uh, the lack of PPE equipment uh, this time last year. Um, one, one of our committee members was a head teacher. He was, it was obviously the school was closed. Um, they started making uh, equipment. And, and they, they, they made um, over 140,000 items of PPE equipment. Um, we contributed to that uh, financially. Uh, we did the laps for lives runs uh, with, with some football celebs and ourselves. And, um, you know, that was, that's that community spirit again. And again, that was with, with, with Everton fans as well. So this, is, this was Liverpool coming together uh, to do something for the community. So it's that mix of, you know, social responsibility, political responsibility. Uh, but football is binding that together. And I think that's what Sometimes people forget that they just see that football fans go in, follow the football club and come out again. They don't actually see a, a far richer tapestry uh, that, that, that makes the whole world hopefully uh, an improved place. And, you know, hopefully that's what our name says. You know, it's the spirit of Shankly. We, we know what kind of socialism that, that he wanted in terms of, you know, people working together for, for the collective good. Um, and hopefully we, we've been able to demonstrate that through the, through the COVID crisis. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.